Buongiorno, and welcome to the Global Podcast, where we keep you up to date on the latest trends and insights on diplomacy and international development. I'm your host, Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tecum Global Consultancy, based here in London, which produces this series. In this podcast, I sit down with thought leaders, diplomats, and experts on the field, as well as provide analysis from our own team at Pax to talk more about the need for diplomacy in international development in order to foster political will around greater social impact and good. So grab your headphones and let's get on with the show. On today's episode of the Global Podcast, we're going to explore the final leg of COVID-19's impact in our world, but most importantly, considering the implications it is actually having on the humanitarian sector operating in vulnerable countries. Humanitarians and aid organizations are already experiencing an overwhelming workload due to ongoing wars, crises, and disasters, as highlighted in our recent piece on Lebanon, which I do recommend listening to after this if you haven't already. But with COVID-19 now entering our everyday lives and becoming our new normal, it has made the impossible even more difficult to achieve for humanitarian organizations looking to bring stability and peace towards affected communities. Joining us today to discuss this is Katie Ricard, who is the Head of Programs for Africa and Europe at Impact Initiatives the headquarters of REACH Initiative. Katie holds a MIFIL in Development Studies from the University of Oxford, and her work in Impact Initiatives focuses on overseeing the 13 country offices in Africa and Europe, supporting on strategy, advocacy, and overall approach to research in countries. Katie has worked for Impact Initiatives in various roles, including country coordinator in South Sudan, and as assessment officer leading several research cycles in Jordan, Iraq, and remotely in Syria. Katie, welcome to the Global Podcast. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. It's an absolute pleasure. And just a word of caution and warning for our audience, or maybe warnings a bit much, but just so you know, we are recording this during the summer pause in August, and I happen to be at home in Italy instead of our traditional London studio. So if you hear a honk here and some Vespas there, that's just the sound of Napoli for you. So take that in as uh, some atmosphere for you as you listen to this important podcast. But back to business and let's get going. Uh, Katie, let's ask the key question here. We've been focusing recently on the podcast around the economy, around key countries such as Lebanon and how it has been COVID-19 has been affecting key communities there, but we haven't looked at how it's been impacting humanitarian work overall. So just to the key question of it all, we know COVID has been bad for many, but how bad has it really been for the humanitarian sector? Thanks very much. Um, yeah, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head on, on one of our biggest concerns right now, which is ultimately we have a global pandemic and we have ongoing humanitarian crises, and and these two things are in and of themselves normally quite impossible to deal with, but when when they're compounded and when they overlap, becomes really quite problematic. And I think the reason why we're worried about this overlap is is for two sort of concerns, really. One is, will the humanitarian funding that is currently planned meet what we expect to be escalating needs? And two, um, assuming a, a set amount of funding, how do we prioritise that money 
to, to the most affected populations in countries during this global pandemic. And, and maybe to kind of start trying to answer some of those questions, from our side, you need to kind of break it down into, into two distinct problems. Problem one, which I presume you and, and all of your listeners are quite familiar with, is, is of course COVID-19. I'm going to be speaking a little bit about, about containment measures and how this is having a, a negative impact on population's need. But I want to be very clear before I start that we, we clearly believe containment is critical. And, and problem one is ultimately if we have an uncontained COVID-19 disease outbreak in many of these countries with very limited access to health services, there will be um, extreme and the excess mortality and excess mortality just means more deaths than would normally be the case and, and as well as deaths that we would expect to be preventable. And obviously as humanitarians whose, whose job is to try and prevent un, unnecessary loss of life, this is absolutely something that we need to prevent. So this is kind of problem one and I'm, I'm not going to go into the details of that because I suspect we're, we're familiar with how challenging that problem is. But problem two is, is the containment side um, and how containment is interacting with already pre-existing humanitarian need. In places like Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, South Sudan, we've seen decades in some cases of conflict which has exacerbated um, need where populations are already really struggling to meet their, their basic sort of needs for survival. And, and the, the best example of this, I suppose, would be food security. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if, if you're aware, but the Global director of the World Food Programme, um, early on when, when COVID-19 was first spreading, spreading warned of a of a famine in fact he actually said a biblical famine although in technical terms i'm not quite sure what biblical would mean in this case but certainly a huge concern of, of lack of access to food that could have serious effects on populations ability to survive and, and why is this happening why is this risk there ultimately unfortunately at this point we can see this this risk is no longer a risk but it's becoming materialized and we're seeing it driven by three three what we're kind of calling triple threats, I suppose. Um, threat one is prices are on the rise. Um, in Central African Republic, where we have monthly market monitoring as, as reach, we've seen the highest possible increase in prices um, in July since the beginning of 2020. In Syria, where we've also been conducting market monitoring for, for many years now, we saw uh, an increase in prices of key items in June. And, and by, by May, it was 28% increase in prices. And these aren't kind of key items like shampoo or conditioner. We're talking about soap, food, um, rent, and um, key, key commodities that are required for basic survival of these households. But while these prices are rising, it's not like we're seeing incomes rising in tandem. Um, we, we conducted a large, we conduct a large assessment in Afghanistan on a monthly basis. And, and a couple of months ago, we assessed 3,533 settlements in Afghanistan. And of these, 66% reported that they were losing income. And 74% to try and cope, presumably, with this loss of income and or the rising prices, reported taking on debt. And we're seeing similar findings in Iraq, Bangladesh and Kenya. And then finally, compounding all of this is, is one of the reasons why prices are increasing in the first place, which is supply is disrupted. And in some countries, especially where already market supply chains were under threat, such as Yemen, we're seeing supply and, and key commodities for survival, such as water or food, no longer being available in some of these markets. For example, in Yemen, 45% um, of, of retailers that we assessed in markets reported that they did not have enough supply to match the household's demand. And, and, and I think, I mean, I'm, I'm hopefully making clear why it's so concerning um, 
because it's not just an individual country that this is happening in, but this is happening across many countries. And as households struggle to meet basic needs in many of these countries, they rely on kind of both in-country and global safety nets. Yet, as, as this is all happening at the same time in multiple countries, we're seeing one of the key sources of safety nets, such as remittances, starting to drop. The World Bank have predicted, for example, this year that there'll be a 20% drop in, in remittances, which represents a reduction from 554 billion foreign direct investment to low-income countries to 445 billion this year. I don't think I necessarily need to spell it out much further, but the scale of the crisis in terms of those which were already in need being pushed into to the more severe ends of the spectrum where, where they're going to start having to make some really tough choices between health or food. But then also there's all those households that were just on the brink, perhaps somehow getting by, that are now being pushed over the edge and into a humanitarian need when previously they were they were vulnerable. So in short, it's an enormous challenge um, and and it's very difficult to know in this moment who to prioritize and, and where to prioritize. And I think actually saying an enormous challenge is, is definitely an understatement because what you've been highlighting is basically it is now this crisis is creating new vulnerable communities. For example, let's take the case of Lebanon where you've had the middle class now has become poor and then the poor has become more destitute than normal. And let's not even get into the discussion around the Syrian and refugee communities that are located there as well. So it's just been creating more and more issues um, to put it lightly, for humanitarian actors that are present on the field, which is allowing me to ask this other question. Uh, how are the humanitarian organizations coping with this extra workload? Because already we've been seeing an unprecedented amount of crises from the Syrian crisis to Yemen uh, to interest, to, as you said, food insecurities that have been occurring as well, let's say in the uh, African horn at present with lotuses that have suddenly been appearing. So to make references to biblical proportions, I mean the lotus swarms that have been just eating up crops. Um, how much more daunting has it made their work become to the point where they're asking themselves, is this even feasible? Yeah, it's, it's a really great question. And I think um, my, my admiration lies very much with, with those who are working in these countries directly. Um, and, and as you know, it's, it's normally staff from from these countries, so South Sudanese staff, Nigerian staff, and um, staff from Afghanistan, they're on the on the front line, if you will, providing these services in extremely challenging environments. Um, at the same time, what we're starting to see is is we have to we have to make these really tough choices between basically what types of assistance is is critical enough to put both the staff delivering the service, but also the beneficiaries receiving the service at risk of face-to-face -face contact. And, and we're taking some, yeah, we're all having to, to take really tough choices as, of whether the activity that we would have otherwise done to, to support the population is, is basically worth it um, and, and, and is worth the risk. And there's been many moments where I think ethically it becomes very challenging to know what the right thing to do is. On the, on the bigger scale, I think the other problem is, is this prioritisation story. We only have so much resources and we only have so much time and we only have so many teams and staff in these countries that can do, the, do this work. And now the, the situation is rapidly ex expanding, um, well, the, the needs are rapidly expanding. It becomes very difficult to prioritise what we should focus on. Um, and, and, and just kind of looping back into the story about, about the kind of the worsening needs of these populations, what we're seeing is, um, is, is those needs are compounding our ability to also um, respond to COVID-19. So um, it's a sort of, it's a, it's a vicious spiral that if we don't manage to, 
to, to respond. We're going to see bigger and bigger outbreaks and less ability to contain the disease. I'll stop there because I think that was some, some general reflections and I'm not sure if it directly answered your question. It definitely answers the question because it's now leading me to ask in regards to where's the support the humanitarian community is getting. Already there has been talk and actually already presumed already action in regards to funding that has been allocated towards development programs and also humanitarian aid has been cut and of course it's becoming a lot harder not impossible but a lot harder to garner the funds needed to support the ongoing work what's the actual situation on the ground in regards to humanitarian work at present is is the money running dry or is there any donation let's say in kind or any of the sort being provided by either grand scale donors or government agencies to support the ongoing work because while one is focusing on COVID-19 and trying to nip that in a bud, it, it, there's, you know, the Yemeni war has not gone away. The, the refugee crisis in Syria has not gone away. Refugee camps on Greek Isles have not gone away. What, what, what is the actual uh, support being given? Yeah, so... Um... I mean, I've got some good news here, or somehow good news, um, <laughs> which is nice to share for once. Um, so the Global Humanitarian Fund, which is kind of a, an internal system that, that collates um, resources through the United Nations agencies through to, to NGOs working in many of these different countries. In June 2019, the, the Global Fund stood at 9.14 billion. And in June 2020, so that's now basically, we've, we've seen it rise to 12.87 billion. So good news is it's, it's not looking right now like funding is on the decline it looks like it's been maintained and perhaps even slightly topped up however going back to that that remittances decline that i mentioned before that represents a loss of 109 billion of investment to these countries um, and we're seeing a, a very small increase in humanitarian funding so you can see that while there is an increase I, I don't think it's in in the scale or in the proportion of the scale of the needs we're seeing on the ground and and i think this is really important it it's important we just we don't just prioritise health um, because while health, of course, is really important and COVID-19 and containing the measures and ensuring that the health facilities have the, the correct ventilators, etc., is, is of critical importance for, for saving lives. As I said before, there's there's many other needs that are on the rise and these, these kind of um, interact with, with the disease outbreak to often make the situation worse. So going back to this idea of a trade-off, if a household has limited access to food um, and can't afford basically food um, and then the household member becomes sick they have this kind of really tough choice do they send their household member to the hospital to get the necessary treatment or for example do they self-isolate and let that household member stay at home and not work but therefore lose further income or do they take a choice that's to the detriment of both their health and, and perhaps the health of their community but potentially enables them to, to maintain their food consumption for that week and, and so what we're seeing is, is these the, the kind of rise in humanitarian needs is, is creating trade-offs, which mean that households no longer have the ability to afford to protect themselves from COVID-19. Um, and, and just a couple of examples of this, like, for example, in Yemen, we're seeing a 150% increase in the price of water trucking. Water trucking is, is literally a truck with water on the back 
and it, it goes around neighbourhoods and delivers kind of clean drinking and, and, and cooking and, and sanitation sort of appropriate water to households. And it's critical for, for hand washing, for all the things we need to do to, to protect households from the spread of COVID-19 in Yemen. And yet now it's becoming increasingly unaffordable. And I suspect, although I don't have the data to support this, that households in Yemen therefore are choosing to reduce their water, which means they're probably wash, washing their hands less and, and doing less of the activities you know to protect themselves um, in order to, to maintain their food consumption. And another example is, is Niger. We're seeing, we've seen 78% of, of, of those we interviewed in two regions reported they had no soap for washing their hands. And that's not because they don't want soap, it's because they can't afford soap. Or soap's not accessible in the markets. But you can see it kind of compounds each other. And, and if we only prioritise that money, that increase in money on COVID-19, we're going to probably end up exacerbating the situation even further because it's not just health facilities that need support right now. It's, it's the whole full package for, for these households to be able to meet their, their basic survival requirements. Full package and also how daunting the situation is making already a complicated uh, scenario. Uh, you've highlighted in regards to inaccessibility, for example, to work and, and how it, one is asking oneself, do I, do I risk it in work or do I get COVID, which is the lesser of two evils. And it's reminding me very much of a, of a report I read in regards to in Lebanon taking place in the Bekaa Valley, where there are families where because of the lockdown, they're actually choosing mass suicide in order to not die of hunger. Uh, and it's allowing one to really ask what is the, the, the mental and, 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 and greater toll that this conflict, not this conflict, excuse me, this pandemic is having on the vulnerable communities, which allows me to ask the, I guess, the final key question, um, how bright will the future be for humanitarian work if this continues to go? Because while we are continuing to impose lockdowns, because it, it, it's continuing to be the case, for example, in Morocco, where the informal sector is still suffering, I understand it's still the situation in Afghanistan, which according to a report, which Impact has produced, that I read in their hard to reach assessment, where 41% uh, of those who were assessed did not have access to a market nearby, which if you need to be able to go out and you don't have a market nearby, how will you get your food accordingly? And the 56% of those who assessed not even having access to enough food. Uh, what is the future going to be like in this aspect? Has there been any light at the end of the tunnel or are, are the humanitarian, uh, is the humanitarian community, excuse me, asking itself greater questions in regards to what is what is feasible, what is not feasible, and how can we uh, reduce the forest fires, as one says, uh, before they get even uh, bigger? Yeah, I mean, um, I think that there's no doubt that the humanitarian community, no one's going to, to pack up shop and go home. I think clearly we're still needed and, and needed now more than ever, despite the challenges of operating. I think what we're really trying to look at as a humanitarian community is prioritisation. Um, making those really tough choices of, of, you know, what is the most important life-saving activity in this area. If we've got not enough funding to go around, if we have limited access to these populations, either because of COVID-19 containment measures or because of, of conflicts um, in these areas, we, we have to choose what, what's the most important. And, and and not to just plug what the work of my own organisation, but the only way you can prioritise is if you know what's going on. And, and this is one of the biggest issues, or at least from my side, what's most frightening right now is, um, is we just really at this point still can't say for certain the scale or the depth of, of the needs in different areas. And we need to answer those questions to be able to know how much funding or which, which areas should be prioritised, what type of assistance should be provided 
prioritise? Is this area having um having a major uh, cholera outbreak? Is this area yeah having having large numbers um at, at the point of starvation? And and it's very difficult if you don't know those those things, we, we can't prioritise effectively and, and take those really tough choices. And so we then have to take choices without without necessary information. And those that are most in need might be might be missed. And there is like some good work that's being done on this in terms of kind of trying to support prioritisation through through data collection and analysis. FuseNet, for example, the the, the global famine and early warning um, network. That, that, that work from, from Washington, D.C. have done some great analysis. The World Bank is, is producing a lot of analysis on the economic impacts of COVID. But ultimately, we're really struggling to do face-to-face data collection, which is where we get a sense of what's actually happening. There's, there's only so much you can do with satellite imagery analysis or second-hand reports of the situation to kind of cobble a picture together. And, and yet, data collection right now is more difficult than ever because, um, because of COVID-19 restrictions. And going back to that ethical choice I talked about earlier, we're taking these ethical decisions all the time as reach. Should we assess this area? Is this a life-saving piece of information, or is this a piece of information that, that it's okay if we conduct in a less we conduct the, the data collection in a less reliable way? Um, and yeah, I suppose I suppose boiling it down maybe in, in slightly more nerdy terms, but um, going back to this this point on famine, the biggest concern we have as a as a community and an, an, an analysis community is the idea of a risk of a false negative. So there's two ways you can you can be wrong when it comes to a famine. You can either say a famine is occurring when it's not, which is a false positive, and, and obviously it's a problem because it means that donors in the humanitarian community no longer have trust in the, in the declaration of a famine and no longer necessarily provide those resources and that prioritisation I was talking about. But the biggest risk is a false negative, that something like a famine is occurring and we just don't know about it, so we can't prioritise and we can't deliver the necessary resources to those communities. And this is the real risk right now, that in the absence of proper data collection, in the absence of the ability to do research and analysis in in many of these countries in the way that we would normally like to, I'm I'm very personally worried that there could be very severe situations ongoing in in different areas around the the world and we're we're not yet aware of it because we're, we're unable to access access those most in need and i guess i lied when i said that was my final question but the real question to wrap this up is to hopefully garner some hope is is there are there any solutions in which governments or private sectors or other parties uh can provide and apart from donations of course uh and and funds in regards to support the work of humanitarian actors working under stressful environments uh, to provide solutions for vulnerable communities, but at the same time under these COVID nineteen conditions. Yeah, so I'm not I'm I'm a researcher, not a response actor. Although we, we work in all of these humanitarian crises directly, so what I'm about to say is in my own personal thoughts from working in many of these countries with very closely with those which are on the front line of the actual response. I think things that would really help would be. Um, Improvement on the supply chain, so supporting um, easing of supply chain restrictions for key humanitarian goods, so food, water, medicines, to, to those countries which are clearly most in need. Um, similarly, kind of the resumption of, of, of flights and, and movement between different countries to enable access of both people and goods to these to these populations. Um, advocacy to, to try and... Um, 
um, yeah, to, to cut through some of the bureaucratic impediments that humanitarians face in these countries. So it's, it's often very difficult to get permits to work, permits to arrive, permits to move within one region to another region at the best of times. Those types of sort of bureaucratic impediments on top of the normal you know, well, the, the current impediment of, of working in a global pandemic and all that that entails, it just adds unnecessary pressure. So advocacy and support to, to try and kind of smooth out bureaucracy, which sounds perhaps slightly boring, but is so important, would really help us be more efficient. And then um, maintaining pressure um, on governments to not to not just look inwards, to, to keep looking outwards, to realise that this is a global pandemic, not a country pandemic, and that if we don't sort of yeah, and um, try and address these needs properly, then then it will enable and and, and only help spread further COVID nineteen and, and and make this a less contained and a more dangerous um, outbreak. Well, Katie, thank you very much for providing that insight. It has provided lots of, as I traditionally say, food for thought for our audience and also for those who are listening in and are trying to understand what the current struggles are for humanitarian organizations and perhaps identify a way to provide the assistance needed during these very unique times under this very new normal. So Katie, thank you very much for coming on the Global Podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure hearing from you. Thanks very much. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Global Podcast. I'm Jesu Antonio Baez, director of Pax Tech and Global Consultancy, which produces this series. Please do check out our website at www.paxtechandglobal.org. That's P-A-X-T-E-C-U-M-G-L-O-B-A-L dot org to discover more about our work. You can also follow this podcast and the work of Pax on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and of course subscribe on both Spotify and Apple Podcast. Join us next week for another edition, and until next time, grazie e ci sentiamo presto. Ciao!